What in the world is going on? There's much to talk about in terms of what God has told us is going to happen that we aren't going to have time to talk about in the few weeks we have to deal with it. But we want to look at some of the main thoughts of what God says about today and about tomorrow's news, what he says in his word about that. How could God allow bad things to happen to people he loves? Some people think there is no answer, and they give up in despair. A loving, all-powerful God couldn't let it happen. Therefore, God must be less than loving, or he must not be all-powerful. The book of Revelation was written to answer those doubts. Our reality is far removed from the reality of the original readers. Their experience seems to be very different than our experience. The generation that John is writing to, as well as the generation that he is writing about, are suffering worse than what any generation has ever experienced or endured until now. Revelation is written to people who are suffering because of their faith. It's written to encourage us by helping us understand God's perspective on what happens when we go through things like that. It shows us the end of the story. There's no question about his love or about his power when we see the rest of the story. There's no question about how it all turns out. It's addressed to God's people in the midst of suffering for his sake, as many have done down through the ages of the church, this book has brought encouragement to them. It brings encouragement to people in our day who are suffering because of their faith. John wrote, I believe, with three purposes. The first was to encourage us when we suffer for our faith. The second purpose was to inform us of the outcome of the conflict. And finally, it was written to motivate us to remain faithful in spite of what it may cost us. The theme of the book is that Christ, who is the judge of the universe, is judging his creation that God is in control, that he wins. 
however dismal things may look in our day. Although his people may suffer, God even controls those who are in rebellion against him. He will be victorious. And his faithful people will participate in his victory. The structure of the book of Revelation is revealed in chapter 1, verse 19. John is instructed to write things you've seen, things which are now, things which shall be later. So in chapter 1, he writes what he has seen already, which is Christ the judge. And it depicts him as the judge ruling over his world. Then he deals with things which are now. And in chapters 2 and 3, he describes the circumstances in the church and shows that the judge is in the midst of his churches overseeing what happens in the churches. And then the remainder of the bulk of the book, the bulk of it, is found in chapters 4 through the end of the book. Things which shall be later. And depicts the judge judging over the nations. When we think of the book of Revelation, we usually focus our minds on what the book tells us about God's plan. And that's certainly significant. But that isn't the whole theme of the book. Chapter 12, John backs up, starts the story all over again from the perspective of Satan. And in chapters 12 through 18, he describes Satan's plan and tells us what God's going to do about it. Chapter 4 to 11 describe God's program for the future. Chapters 12 through 18 show the cause of God's judgment, which is Satan's program. Chapters 12 and 13 describe the plan as Satan lays it out. It begins with Satan's opposition to God at the beginning of chapter 12. And he attempts to destroy God's anointed one. And as you read through the Gospels and the history of the New Testament, you discover Satan had plenty of reason to think he'd won. Because he did destroy the anointed one. But he didn't ruin the plan. Chapter 12 continues describing Satan's expulsion from heaven. The Lord is going to throw him out, and when he does, he will pour out his vengeance upon the earth. Satan, that is. There's an interesting depiction in this book that looks very much like Satan is making a deliberate attempt to imitate the Trinity. We see the head, which is Satan, 
He has an anointed one, in chapter 13 is introduced as the beast. And then he has his prophet who glorifies the beast. Interesting parallel to the Trinity, the Father who is the head, the Son who is the anointed one, and then the Holy Spirit who has come to glorify the anointed one. And those two pictures look very similar. Satan making a deliberate attempt to imitate God in his program. Chapters 14 through 18, we see Satan's program recompensed. God goes into action in a response to Satan's program. He judges those who have participated in Satan's program. And after judging, in general, all of those who participate in Satan's program, he focuses in on two specific events of judgment that God says he is going to take action in these two areas in particular. The first deals with what he has referred to as Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. By God's action against this religious center, God answers his suffering people. What's God going to do about their suffering? Look at this. If I had a lot more time, I would take you back to the Old Testament to demonstrate how man-made, self-centered religion has functioned from the very beginning. From the time it was birthed in Genesis chapter 10 through the Old Testament prophets in Zechariah chapter 5 and then coming up to this chapter, chapter 17 of the book of Revelation, we see this man-centered religion glorifying man rather than God. So chapter 17 describes the judgment of that prostitute, that man-made religion. Chapter 17 begins, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. John sees here what God does to the prostitute. God judges a great prostitute who commits adultery with pagan kings and peoples. Interesting point he makes here. 
takes us all the way back to Genesis 10. Passages that point to Shinar as the center of man-made religion. Babylon. The origin of human religions which oppose God's plan are born back there. And its role has been significant since the beginning, since Genesis 10, since the tower where man was going to make something great that would glorify himself. Now, an interesting debate takes place here. And again, if I had a lot more time, I would go into some of it. But the question is, is this talking about literal Babylon? Or is it talking about another entity which is referred to as Babylon because of the historical connection with Shinar? And good scholars disagree on that. I suppose I ought to tell you that uh, I vote with those who think there's a restoration of the literal Babylon. Remember the dream of Saddam Hussein? Perhaps his dream didn't die with him. But that's a bigger topic for another time. And it really doesn't matter as we look at this particular story and it's significant to our lives, it doesn't matter who this Babylon is. What matters is what happens. Man-made, self-centered religion which exalts our abilities and leaves God's out, God out, seduced by power, seduced by possessions and pleasure, seduced by worship of self and an I-can-do-it-myself philosophy. Empowered and supported by the political world system. Listen to his description of the prostitute in verses 3 through 6. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, had seven heads and ten horns. Where have we heard that before? Your mind happened to go back to Daniel chapter 7? Had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So this prostitute, this religious system that brings about the persecution of the people of God is supported by the political world system. If you look at a parallel passage in Zechariah 5, it talks about putting a woman in a pot taking her to Shinar, supported by the political system 
that then destroys her. Here, the prostitute is supported by a political world system. She is dressed in fancy garments. Her external appearance looks great. Wealthy supporters treat her well. She's identified as the mother of all abominations, religious and otherwise. She is drunk with the shed blood of martyred saints. This describes, and interestingly, over the years, I've been around long enough to hear this applied to different people, and my mind doesn't struggle much to make a modern 21st century application of who is describable in this way. We've read about that possibility even this week. But I don't think it's limited to that. I think it's a broader scope here that has brought persecution to the people of God down through the generations. She's had her fill of the blood of faithful people, world religions that have martyred the people of God. But now the judge has the last word. And I may say this two or three times this morning. Let me say it again. I really don't care if you agree with all the fine points of where I go with this. That's okay. But do not miss the big point. God has the final word here. However much the people of God may suffer because of their trust in him, whatever generation they have shed their blood because of his name, in the end, the judge has the last word. And so in chapter 17, you, you see the world system supporting this woman. But at the end of the chapter, the prostitute that's supported by the political world system is destroyed by that world system. Let me read another section of this chapter where the final world power involves this cooperative alliance of 10 kings, beginning with verse 12. The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and with him, will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So these kings are associated with the beast. They attempt to defeat the lamb. They make war against him. Reminds me of Psalm 2. It says the nations are roaring against God and his anointed one. They make war against him. They want to destroy him and his faithful followers. 
but the Lamb will defeat them. That's where this is going. Because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, he is greater than all the kings of the earth. And this section concludes the faithful triumph with him. The kings will be destroyed. But before that happened, God uses the kings to destroy the prostitute. Zechariah 5 tells us she sits comfortably in the midst of the nations. And the beast turns and destroys her. The beast becomes God's instrument to fulfill his purpose. The prostitute who controls the kings of the earth will be destroyed by those kings. Which is the answer to the nagging question, nagging question, how could God let his people suffer like that? God's plan to overcome the world includes these enemies. And the world political system becomes the means of destroying the religious system. It turns on itself and God wins. The faithful triumph with him. The affliction we may be going through at any moment in history is not the end of the story. In comparison to the eternal glory, which will be ours, the momentary light affliction, Paul tells us, though it seem incredibly hard, in contrast to that glory, amounts to nothing. There's a danger to all people in all generations to be sucked in by the world's religious system. It looks impressive, but its end is destruction. And those who are faithful to the Lamb will be opposed and oppressed by world religions, by political pressure, but the Lamb wins. The prostitute and the world system are destroyed. Those who are faithful triumph with him. Therefore, the implied warning, counsel for us is to faithfully follow the Lamb. However difficult that may become. That's the first part of God's judgment of Satan's program. Chapter 18 labels another aspect of it using close to the same words, but a different description. Chapter 18 describes the judgment of the prosperous city, the place where the prostitute lived the prosperous city, Babylon the Great. Verses 1 through 8 describe the devastation. After the destruction of the religious system, different 
description is given. This place is described as a great commercial center. Verse 2 and 3. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Judgment comes against the city where the prostitute functions. Again, it could be referring to a literal Babylon or to some other city that is described figuratively as Babylon. But the description as you read through the things it says about this city describes a commercial center. People have not stretched far to say maybe the cities or the place that fits that description is the United States with all of its commercial center. Because nothing else like it exists today. But I would remind us that things grow up overnight. Remember the restoration of Israel in 1948? More notable in my thinking as I think about the possibility of a restored Babylon, how about Brasilia? Overnight, a huge mega city grew up in the jungle. And then there was Saddam Hussein with his vision of rebuilding a new Babylon. Which is it? I don't know. I noticed the description of the wealth here is Middle Eastern. It's not technological. It's a Middle Eastern type of wealth. Enough about that, because it really doesn't matter. What matters is the end. Verses 9 to 19 is a lamentation. The nations who have done business with this city mourn her loss. Verses 20 to 24 describe why the city is judged. Verse 20, rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. It looked pretty bad when they were going through it. But when you see the rest of the story, there's cause for rejoicing. Verse 24, the motivation. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. God was not asleep. He didn't turn his back on his people. He observes the suffering of his people. He judges those who afflicted the saints. And in the end, he wins. 
and we triumph with him. In a couple of weeks, we're going to come back and look at the very end of this story. This is sort of a near the end, approaching the conclusion part of the story. But chapters 19 through 22 present the climax of the conflict. The results of the judgment. And chapter 19 begins, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. At last we see it. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has venged on her the blood of his servants. We may not grasp all the details of this passage, but the end is clear. So what? We can look at God's victory, the destruction of the religious system, the destruction of the political system. We can look at the heavenly praise and say, wow, wouldn't that be an exciting worship service to participate in? Wouldn't that be great? And walk away saying, so what? How does that affect me? How is this going to change my life tomorrow morning? And in spite of all that this story tells us, we still don't get it. We will never understand the intensity of their praise in chapter 19 until we understand the intensity of the pain that the people of God have gone through for his namesake. We have all these persecution books, and we pay little attention to them. If we're going to pay any attention to them at all, we draw theology from them. And we miss the whole point of what all those books are about. The book of Daniel. Daniel cries out to God when God shows him this revelation and says to God, How can you let this happen? The book of Ezekiel. God tells Ezekiel, take the book and eat it, and it's sweet judgment, but it's bitter judgment. We look at the book of Habakkuk, and the prophet cries out, God, how long are you going to let this go on? When are you going to do something? And then we come to John's record. Down through the ages, the people of God have suffered for his namesake. And in our comfortable life, we, we somehow miss 
that. We read about what's going on in Afghanistan. We read about what's going on in Nigeria. We read about what's going on in Sudan or in China or in North Korea or 50 countries of the world. We can read about the affliction that the people of God are going through. So what? Aren't we nice and comfortable? Do we really care? And until we grasp the intensity of that pain, we will never understand the intensity of their worship. We'll never understand the meaning, the significance of our pain until, on the other hand, we understand the significance of the praise that God receives. Do we really get it? With all that our world has gone through and is going through, the people of God suffering today, God wins! And we triumph with him. However bad things may become, and they may become very bad, However bad things may look, don't lose your perspective. We know how the story ends. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise our God, all you who serve him, all you who fear him, small and great alike. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. And he deserves the glory. Father, we are grateful for that confidence. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. As we look at our world around us and how your people have suffered for your namesake, though we have enjoyed relative calm and peace, we realize that that may change tomorrow. May we never lose our perspective. We pray for your people suffering around the world for your namesake, that they might not lose their perspective, that they might see the judge seated on his throne, judging over the world and declaring victory. May we as your people be faithful that we might triumph with you. And as people watch and see our lives, may they see the witness that you are worth it and be drawn to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.